Hello and welcome to the Sacred City Life Podcast. This is your host, Pastor Justin Dean. This podcast is all about helping you follow Jesus in the everyday normal rhythms of life. Folks, how are we doing at that? Would you let us know? Would you email us and let us know, uh, are you enjoying the podcast? What are your thoughts? What topics do you want us to cover? We've been getting more and more emails. We appreciate those. We also appreciate if you give us a like in the podcast app that helps other people find us. Um, the stupid logarithm is hard to get around. Share it on Facebook. Share it wherever you're at. Uh, when you find something that's helpful, we are really trying to equip our people to be good missionaries um, and good followers of Jesus in this crazy society we live in right now. And uh, today I have my uh, pastoral assistant, Kevin Knorr, with me. Hey, guys. And I've got my deacon of Sacred City Youth, Alex Tate. How's it going, guys? Yes. And today we're following up on the lad, last podcast on the gospel changes everything or gospel renewal. And we're still looking at Keller's article. And it's this time we're going to get down in the nitty gritty. We kind of get laid out the theology of how the gospel is the key to Christian growth. The gospel literally changes everything, that every issue in your life is a gospel issue. Mm. It's a, if it's a kind of a failure to live in line of the gospel. Sometimes we say things around here like, oh yeah, I get that in my head, but I, it hasn't gotten to my heart. Mm. So we know something is true, but our heart hasn't came in line with that truth. And this part in the article is just really practical. And Keller just breaks it down piece by piece. And so I'm going to ask you guys to um, read. I'm going to ask you guys to read different uh, segments um, as we work through it. And so um, the first one is the gospel and our approach to discouragement. So how the gospel changes the way we relate to discouragement. So Kevin, would you read that? You bet. When a person is depressed, the moralist says, you are breaking the rules, repent. On the other hand, the relativist says, you just need to love and accept yourself. Without the gospel, superficialities will be addressed instead of the heart. The moralist will work on behavior and the relativist will work on the emotions themselves. But assuming there is no physiological basis for the depression, the gospel leads us to examine ourselves and say, something in my life has become more important than God, a pseudo-savior, a form of works righteousness. The gospel leads us to repentance, not merely setting our will against superficial issues. Okay, so we see that there is, again, Keller is good at laying out um, what he, he kind of has called the third way. So, we talked about the two enemies, the two thieves of the gospel, right? Like Jesus was crucified next to two thieves and the two thieves of the gospel on one hand is moralism mm -hmm. and on the other hand is relativism or we could call liberalism or whatever you want to call it, right? Um, and so he says when depressed, when frustrated, when upset, the moralist says you're breaking the rules, repent, right? But the relativist says just love yourself and accept yourself, right? And so we see on both approaches, uh, one kind of has like a truth with no grace and the other one has kind of like a grace with no truth, right? But he talks about how 
the Christian who wants to bring their, dare I say, discouragement in line with the gospel is going to say something like, okay, I'm really upset right now. Why am I so discouraged? As, and he does do, give the claimer as long as there's no physiological you know, reasons for depression. What in my life has become more important to me than God? Mm-hmm. A pseudo savior, a form of works righteousness. So what he's saying is, why am I depressed right now? Why am I upset? Why am I discouraged? Is it, what did I lose? So, and we would have to take this into our heart and we'd have to take this into our mind and we'd have to take the gospel in. What has become more important to me than God? Okay, is it a breakup? Did my girlfriend break up with me? And now I'm deeply discouraged and I'm deeply depressed. And and what am I thinking right now? I'm thinking I'm, you know, I'm never going to be happy. I'm never going to get married. Okay, right there in that instance. Now, it's okay to grieve that. It's okay to be upset. But if we're really going down that dark hole of discouragement, it might be because we've made marriage <clears throat> into an idol. Mm-hmm. Or we've made that other, that, our girlfriend <clears throat> into an idol. And we were trying to earn our happiness and create our happiness through her instead of through God himself and God's will. And so in that sense, if we're at, now listen, if, if we're like, oh, you know what? I'm really upset. Uh, didn't work out, but I'm trusting the Lord and I'm moving forward. That's one thing. You're, you're upset, you're discouraged, but you're, you're obedient to God and you're moving forward. But if you're crushed, if you can't wake yourself out, up out of bed in the morning, if you can't get out of bed and go to work, you're so despondent because of this girl breaking up with you. More than likely, it's because she has taken the place of God in your heart. She's literally become a pseudo-savior. She's literally become God. And so you're not living in line with the gospel in that scenario. And so what, what, what should a guy do in that situation, Alex? I mean, for sure, be able to um, look himself in the mirror, right? We, we talked about that a, a podcast ago. Um, are you the person that's going to, you know, run, hide, or fight, you know? And um, you have to be able to look yourself in the mirror to see where am I falling short, um, and if you can't look yourself in the mirror, get around some guys um, in community that can help walk these um, things out and to be able to help you see the root of what's going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when I see the root of what's going on, what do I need to do, Kevin? Repent. Repent. And what does it look like to repent? So here's a key piece. Keller always talks about <clears throat> you can't just remove an idol. Mm-hmm. Anytime you remove an idol, if you don't replace it, with God, something else will grow there. Mm-hmm. So you can't just say, oh, I'm so sorry, I repent for idolizing this girl. And you don't go any farther than that. And then the next girl comes along yeah. and she becomes your next pseudo savior. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? You repent and what, Kevin? Replace it with Jesus. Replace it with Jesus. You lean into the gospel that tells you that Jesus Christ died for you. That's how much he loves you. Mm-hmm. That in the, I know this is a weird thing for men, but Jesus is our spouse in one sense. In that sense, He is the one who sticks closer to to uh, to us than a brother. Yeah. Right? We are married to Him in that sense, and so until Jesus brings the one that you're looking for, Jesus is your one, yeah. Yeah. and you find your identity in Him. That's what it. That's what it means to replace it. 
Now, people always say, yeah, but that's hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome to life. <laughs> yeah. Everything is hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard to replace the idol of money with the idol of satisfaction in Christ. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Every idol is hard. That's what makes it an idol. It's a created, that's what's wrong with us. We want to worship the creation rather than the creator. Yeah, yeah. And that's why we can't do it on our own strength. We have to have the power of the gospel. We have to have the Holy Spirit in order to do it. But this is the work that God's called us to do. Yeah. People want to ask me all the time, if salvation is all grace and all Jesus, what are we to do? This. Believe the gospel. Mm-hmm. Bring the gospel to bear to every issue of your life. Okay. Do it through a journal. Do it through prayer. Do it through missional community. If you can't do it yourself, have your MC do it for you. But this is the goal. Okay. So, <clears throat> Keller's second one is, how did the gospel come to bear on the approach to the physical world? This is different. Some moralists are indifferent to the physical world and see it as important. Other Unimportant. Moral- unimportant. Moralists are downright afraid of physical pleasure. And since they are seeking to earn their salvation, they, pref- they prefer to focus on sin of the physical nature, like a failure to discipline sex or the other... Appetites. Appetites. These are easier to avoid the sin of the spirit of pride. Therefore, moralists prefer, prefer to see sin of the body as worse than the other kind. Okay, pause. So moralists oftentimes are either indifferent to the physical world, they only care about the spiritual world, mm-hmm. or they see everything in the physical world as kind of like evil and bad. Mm-hmm. And so sexual sins like lust or masturbation or whatever is like the, or homosexuality is the epitome of sins. Mm-hmm. And they just kind of, they, they don't really care about pride. You know, they don't really care about envy. They don't really care about boasting. They don't really care about gossip. They kind of, you know, see the sins of the flesh Mm -hmm. as more important. Okay, that's the moralist. But then he goes on and uh, talks about the relativist. On the other hand, go ahead, Alex. On the other hand. It says, on the other hand. The legalism. No, the relativists is often, you see that part? About halfway through. I can, I can catch it up. On the other hand, the relativist is often a hedonist, someone who is controlled by pleasure and makes it into an idol. So where the moralist often sees the body is bad and the physical world is bad, the, the relativist sees the body as God, mm-hmm. yeah. sees sex as God, sees pleasure as God. It's all about what makes me feel good, yeah. right? So sometimes the moralist says the body's bad, the spirit's good. Kind of a platonic view of the world. And the hedonist, the relativist, says, no, the body's everything. Because mm-hmm. they don't believe in an afterlife, so you might as well get it right now yeah. while the getting's good, right? Mm-hmm. But the gospel, you see where we're at now, Alex? Yeah. The gospel leads us to see that God has created both body and soul, and so will redeem both body and soul. Although under sin, both body and soul are broken. Thus, the gospel leads us to enjoy the physical and to fight against physical brokenness, such as sickness and poverty, yet to be moderate in our use of material things. Yeah, moderate in our use of material things. So you see how the gospel, again, 
is a third way. Now, when I, we talk about third way and Keller specific, when he talks about it, he's not talking about like a middle, like you take half from here and half from there. Mm. It's a separate way. It's a third, it's a separate way. It's a way of bringing the gospel to bear. So the gospel tells us that the physical world actually matters mm-hmm. because Jesus Christ had a physical body and he was resurrected with the physical body mm-hmm. and we're going to have a physical body in the new heavens, the new earth. But soul matters too. Yeah. Spirit matters too. And so we, we, we see that the pleasures of this life are good, yeah. but they are broken and they can be sinful. And so you see things like even in the qualifications for elders, not to be a drunkard. Qualifications for deacon, not to be addicted to much wine. It's clear there that they're not saying they have, they're prohibitionists, don't drink alcohol. Well, the Old Testament said alcohol was given to gladden the heart of man. So we hold these texts together and we're like, okay, alcohol is a good gift given to us from a good God mm-hmm. that we're meant to enjoy. It's meant to gladden our hearts. It's meant to make the party fun. It's meant to be a social lubricant. We're meant to enjoy it after a rough day. But alcohol can also be used in a sinful way. Mm -hmm. We can become addicted to it. We can become ruled by it. It can become an idol in our life. It can ultimately take over our life and destroy us, right? And so we have to walk this gospel-centered peak, this gospel-centered summit, and say we're going to enjoy it for the, you know, to the glory of God, and yet we're not going to overindulge in it, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Yeah. And same thing goes for for sex, right? Uh, where we all, I always joke in premarital counsel, counseling when people come to me for pre- premarital counseling and they come from a religious background. Many times, the idea they get from a, of a moralistic background is sex is dirty, mm. so save it for the one you love. <laughs> it's like yeah. uh. That, and so no, they sometimes come into sex with all kinds of sexual problems, right? Yeah. But then if they come from a more liberal background or a more <clears throat> laissez-faire, irreligious background, they view sex in all kind of sinful ways, mm-hmm. and sex has sometimes become not even a big deal to them. Mm-hmm. That people come to me before they're even married, and they're not even, and they, yeah, we used to have sex, but we're not even really having sex that much anymore. I'm like, what? Because <clears throat> it's just become, uh, uh, it's been divorced from, uh, from the God of Scripture and from the, the ordained uses of Scripture. And so the gospel-centered Christian sees sex as good, yeah. but not sex as God, mm. and yet we use it the way God has called us to use it. That it's, sex is good in, in the confines of marriage between a husband and a wife, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Masturbation is a sin. Homosexuality is a sin. Um, any type of sex in, God, in, in ways that God does not ordain uh, there's all kind of stuff in the Bible. It talks about um, um, bestiality. It talks about um, sodomy. It talks about different things like that. Those are not, you can't, we can't, those are sinful ways that the mm-hmm. Christian can't partake in. Okay, so we've seen it, how the gospel is a unique perspective in when it comes to discouragement, when it comes to the physical world. Uh, Kevin, what about our approach to love and relationships? Yeah, moralism often makes relationships into a blame game. This is because a moralist is traumatized by criticism that is too severe and maintains a self-image as a good person by blaming others. On the other hand, moralism can use the procuring of love as the way to earn our salvation and convince ourselves that we are worthy persons. That often creates what is called codependency, 
a form of self-salvation through needing people or needing people to need you, that is, saving yourself by saving others. Mm. On the other hand, much relativism reduces love to a negotiated partnership for mutual benefit. You relate only as long as it is not costing you anything. So the choice without the gospel is to selfishly use others or to selfishly let yourself be used by others. But the gospel leads us to do neither. We do sacrifice and commit ourselves, but not out of a need to convince ourselves or others that we are acceptable. We can love the person enough to confront when that's needed, yet stay with the person even when it does not benefit us. So we kind of talked about this in even the discouragement. I accidentally used an example of relationships, but in the moralistic view of relationships, we're really using people to get our own identity. We're worshiping people uh, to tell, tell, to tell, we want them to tell us that we're good. Mm-hmm. We want them to tell us that we're needy. And so we off, the, the moralist often creates codependent relationships. Mm-hmm. You even see this where a highly anxious, I'm just going to use female, but it could be any male or female, a highly anxious female will be, be, will marry or be in a relationship with a person who constantly is needy or constantly broken or constantly whatever. And it's like they feed off of one another. Her anxiety, her desire to be needed and his desire to run away and to push away, they like, they're like a, a perfect storm mm-hmm. that create this sense of codependency. But in a more... Um, um, relativistic idea of relationships, you don't really need each other. Yeah. You're just kind of partners. And you know what? We're going to do this until it doesn't work out, and then we'll move on to the next victim. Mm. You know, That's kind of how it is. Yeah. Yeah, roommates. Just roommates. We're roommates. Yeah. We're going to see this, but then as soon as we get in a fight, as soon as we get in an argument, there's no commitment here. There's no foundation, and we're going to bounce. Mm. But the gospel does leads us to something different. We sacrifice and commit ourselves, but not because we're trying to convince ourselves that we're good or trying to convince somebody else that we're good. We do it because this is what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. Mm-hmm. Jesus pursued us when we were broken. He loved us. He laid his life down for us. And so that's how we love one another. We're loving others as out of the gas tank of the love that Christ has already given us. Mm-hmm. We're not loving others to get their love in return. Yeah. So it makes the Christian marriage truly unbreakable. If each Christian partner is centered on the gospel then the, the marriage will be unbreakable because the Christians, each Christian will be aware of their own sin and their own failures and their own insecurities, but also aware of the one-way love of God. And out of that one-way love of God and that acceptance of God, they will be free to forgive the other partner and give grace to the other partner. And if both partners are doing this, that marriage is literally unbreakable. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So this is how the gospel is the key. To marriage. So you're having marriage arguments, you're having marriage fights, bring the gospel into bear into that argument. What are you trying to get? Are you trying to get your spouse to do something for you that only God can do? Mm. You trying to get your spouse to give you your identity, give you your dignity, value, and worth? Well, you're in a codependent relationship. You gotta own that. You're trying to get your spouse to be Jesus for you. Yeah. Only Jesus can give that for you. So you've got to repent of that and replace it. With Jesus. So will you will you fall back into those things sometimes, in, into those struggles? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
So one, in your terms, we'll fall back into them. Another one, we'll just do them because we've never brought the gospel to bear on it. Mm-hmm. Like there's always going to be new scenarios where we need to apply the gospel to that we weren't aware of before. As our lives change, as we age, as we go through different seasons of life, as our kids mature or we have no kids or whatever it is, we're constantly going to be able to, we need to see the gospel in a fresh light and how it relates to my current struggles today. Yeah. And we have to learn how to apply the gospel specifically to that situation. That's good. Hmm. So, um, another avenue where the gospel changes us <clears throat> is our approach to suffering. Moralism takes the Job's friends approach. <clears throat> it just lays guilt on ourself. So we assume when we're suffering, I must have done something bad to deserve this. Under the guilt, though, there's always anger towards God. Why? Because moralists believe that God owes them. And specifically, moralists believe that God owes them a good, easy life. The whole point of moralism is to put God in your debt. Because you've been so moral, you feel you don't really deserve suffering. Moralism tears you up, for at one level you think, what did I do to deserve this? But on another level you think, I probably did everything to to deserve this. Mm. When the moralist suffers then, he or she must either feel mad at God because I have been performing well, or mad at myself because I haven't been performing well enough, or both. So this is a... Suffering really reveals this in a lot of people. When you start suffering, you start thinking, if you're more of on the moralist side of things, what did I do to deserve this? Or, I'm a good person, God. Who the heck are you to send suffering my way? And a lot of people think, too, like, I'm a Christian. I, sh- I shouldn't ser- suffer now. Mm. You know, I gave my life to Christ, so why-, why am I suffering? There should be joy in this. Yeah, and those two things don't have to be exclusive. But, spoiler alert, our Savior, our King, died on a bloody, rugged cross. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That might mean something for us in our future. <laughs> spoiler alert, suffering might be a... Suffering is a key piece to being a Christian We're and a human. We're all going to experience suffering, okay? So the moralist will kind of blame God or blame themselves. So they'll either get mad at God and think they didn't deserve it. That's the person that usually thinks they're pretty good. Or they'll get mad at themselves. Dang it, I can't believe I did it. I'm so dumb. I'm so stupid. Why did I do that? They'll get down on themselves. Now, the relativist does something different. The relativist, or even the pragmatist, lays the fall at God's doorstep, claiming that he must be either unjust or impotent. He says, you know what? This is, what kind of God would make a world where suffering exists? This is all God. This is the reason I I don't believe in God, because suffering exists. But the gospel shows us something different. The cross shows us specifically that God redeemed us through suffering. God suffered. Not that we might not suffer, but that in our suffering we could become like him. Since both the moralist and the pragmatist ignore the cross, they both will be confused and devastated 
by suffering. Mm. Only the Christian can truly grow through suffering. Because we see that God is not a God who doesn't suffer. Like, if you say suffering is in itself evil or in itself bad, right? Well, God himself subjected himself to suffering. One, God the Father watched his son be crucified. That's horrible suffering. If you're a parent, you know how horrible that could be. And God the Son stepped into it to to himself and absorbed that suffering Mm. in himself. And he did it to redeem us. And so suffering clearly has a purpose. Suffering might only exist in the history of the world so that God himself could show us what true love looks like and suffer it for us Mm. in our place. But we can't say all suffering is meaningless or that means God is unjust or God is unloving because he himself subjected himself to it, right? And he did it to redeem us. So the Christian, the gospel, might do both of these things. Some suffering that I bring into my life, I might need to absorb, I might need to analyze my life and say, okay, why am I suffering right now? Did I do something dumb, right? Did you run a red light and cause a car accident? And now you're in all kind of pain and all kind of problems and all kind of financial turmoil. Okay, guess what? That was your fault, right? Own that. Bring it to the God. You're still loved. You're still accepted in the Father. You're going to have to pay the ramp, you know, the repercussions of it. But ultimately, you're still loved. You're still in Christ. God can redeem the situation. But maybe sometimes suffering comes and it just comes. Cancer comes. Losing a child comes. It's not a result of our disobedience. It's not necessarily a result of our failure to obey God. Jesus died on a rugged cross. That was not a result of his own sin. Suffering comes to people. Now, Jesus was was the only truly innocent sufferer. Everybody else has sinned, right? Mm -hmm. But suffering still comes, and we've got... um, and so we, 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 when suffering comes and we're discombobulated by it and we're confused by it and there's no answer to it, we bring it back to the foot of Jesus and we say, Jesus, you are the truly innocent sufferer and you willingly did it on my behalf. And so now I'm trusting that from your good hand, you're going to work sovereignly in this situation and you're going to bring good out of it. I don't know how, but I trust you no matter what. And so I'm not going to freak out I'm not going to get self-righteous and think I deserve something other than this. If it wasn't for you, I deserve nothing but death, hell, and the grave. Mm, And so I'm going to accept this from your hand, and I'm going to ask you to help me bear this cross because it feels impossible for me to bear. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. What about sexuality, Kevin? Yep. The relativist sees sex as merely biological and physical appetite. The moralist tends to see sex as dirty or at least a dangerous impulse that leads constantly to sin. But the gospel shows us that sexuality is to reflect the self-giving of Christ. He gave himself completely, without conditions, so we are not to seek intimacy while holding on to control of our life. If we give ourselves sexually, we are to give ourselves legally, socially, personally, utterly. Sex is to happen only within a totally committed, permanent relationship of marriage. That's it. So, 
we've already talked a little bit about this. How the moralist tends to view sex as dirty. Sex is just for procreation, maybe. Just only have sex if you want to have a baby. That's not what the Bible says. Uh, the Bible says sex is for marriage. Yeah. Sex is a covenant renewal ceremony. Sex is fun. Sex is meant to be enjoyable. He made it enjoyable for a reason. But it's meant to be done only between a husband and a, and a wife mm. in God-honoring ways. Yeah. That the marriage bed would be undefiled. That's it. Um, what do you mean by uh, God-honoring ways? So there are... I mean, just... Oh, all right, parents, if uh, you have a... Uh, child in the car I'm going to tell you to push pause we're about to get uh, a little uh, rated R that's what I'm going to say so our culture today views sex as God pleasure as God and so sex is for anything anything goes in sexuality you want to have a threesome you want to have uh what I, whatever you want to watch porn and then do what do what do what they do on on porn, whatever you, you want to I don't know all, all that kind of stuff. That is not God honoring ways. Another way specifically that the Bible uh, is not God honoring way is anal sex. Our culture for some freaking reason thinks that's like the epitome of the best thing on the planet. Um. It's the most bizarre thing for me, but whatever. Um, and that's called sodomy. And so the Bible says no. The Bible, you know, gave women a vagina for a reason. And uh, the other one is meant for exit only. Let's just say that. <laughs> There you go. And so it's very, you know, so that that's a not a God-honoring way. To, to use our sexuality, okay? And so that's how the gospel changes the way we approach sexuality, right? Um, okay. Uh, all right. Parents, you can invite your children back into the conversation. <laughs> we just <laughs> got, we got rated R, maybe even X there for a second. But we're going to do a, um, Man, we have a bunch of these, but we're only going to do a few more of these. You can see them all on the article that we posted on, on Realm and the PDF that's attached to this podcast. Um, let's talk about our approach to self-control, Alex. Approach to self-control. Moralists tell us to control our passions for the fear of the punishment. This is a violation-based approach. The relativism tells us to express ourselves and find out what is right for us. This is an emotion-based approach. The gospel tells us that the free, the gospel tells us that the free, unconditioned grace of God teaches us to say no to our passions. Titus two twelve. If we listen to it, this is a whole person approach, starting with the truth descending into our hearts. Okay, so. The gospel creates self-control in us, okay? Moralism uses the fear of punishment to control. So the moralistic parent will say, <clears throat> you know, don't run into the street because you'll get run over by a car, right? Yeah. It's the fear of punishment. Obey me because it could go really bad for you, right? 
it's really a hammering down on the will. That's why they say it's a volition-based approach. It's hammering your will. Just choose to do good, right? Choose it. Do it. Just do it. Relativism tells us go with your feelings. Mm-hmm. Self-control doesn't matter. Go with your feelings. All right? The gospel teaches us to say no to our passions. Okay? So if we're listening to the gospel, we say no to our feelings when they violate the word of God. And that we bring those, we bring it to bear. So we we think about it like this. This is how I teach my children. I say this. What does the Bible say? Children, obey your parents so that it will go well for you. Yeah. Right? I want them not, I want them to know that God wants it to go well for them, mm-hmm. right? And I want them to love God. They love God and they want it to go well for them. So they're going to obey the rules because they love God and they know that God has their best interest in heart, mm-hmm. not just because they're fearing punishment. And I definitely don't want to take a relativist post approach and just say, whatever you feel, do, right? That's going to lead them to all kind of um, lack of self-control. Because if you eat sugar every time you want to eat sugar, what's going to happen? You're probably going to get sick. Yeah. If you eat hamburgers every time you want to eat hamburgers, what's going to happen? You're probably going to get overweight. If you smoke every time you want to smoke, if you drink every time you want to drink, if you look at porn every time you want to look at porn, if you on and on and on we go. The relativist approach preach, teaches hedonism and it creates people who lack self-control, okay? But the gospel itself shows us that the unconditional grace of God teaches us to say no to our passions, okay? We, we are more than our passions. We are loved in Christ. We're sinful. And so we've, we want to do a lot of things that we should not do. So are our passions always sinful or, I mean, is it stuff that can still line up with the, with the Bible? Because it says um, unconditional grace of God teaches us to say no to our passions. So our passions always a no. Passions aren't always a no, but typically in this text, he's talking about sinful passions. Okay. Basically, you could call them over desires. Mm. So we've talked about this before. It's okay to have a drink. It's okay maybe to have two drinks. But once you have one drink and once you have two drinks, the, the problem is if you don't have self-control, you have a third drink. You have a fourth drink. You, have, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You, you give in to over-desires, mm. right? And that's, that's the relativist says, no problems. Who cares? There's no sin. doesn't matter. Get drunk. Fine. Have sex with whoever you want to have sex with. It gives in to their desires. Where the gospel frees us to say, you know what? I'm not... I'm not obeying God just because I fear punishment. I'm obeying God because I love God and God has the best, he has my best, my best interest in mind. Mm-hmm. Obeying God is the way to human flourishing. Mm-hmm. All right? Like drunkenness produces negative consequences in my life. Yeah. Not just God's going to smack me in my hand, I'm going to kill somebody drunk driving, but it produces all kinds of lack of self-control. And la- if, you don't, if you lack self-control... You're just going to 
you're going to be ruled by your passions your whole life. You're never going to be a husband, a good husband, because as soon as some cute girl walks into your office, your passions are going to say, sin. Mm-hmm. You're going to do it. You, know, you, you can't stop yourself, right? And so this is one of the huge problems with our society right now is men, specifically, lots of women too, but men are ruled by their passions. They don't have self-control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've got guys like Jocko Willink and you've got guys like um, David Goggins and they want to teach you self-control through moralism. Suck it up, you little wuss. Quit complaining. Get up at 5 a.m. and do your workout. Doesn't matter how you feel. You feel bad? Good. Get up and do it anyways. It's raining out? Good. Get up and do it anyways. Go harder. Do more. Suck it up. That's their message. It's moralism. Yeah. Mm. That's not the message of the gospel. The gospel says you are so loved in Christ. You are so forgiven by the work of Christ. You are so you are a member of the family of God. You've been adopted into the family of God. You've been given the riches of Christ and God has your best interest in mind. So look what he's done for you. Love God and trust him. Yeah. Amen to that. And as you love God and you trust him, he will create that self-control because he'll teach you to say no to ungodly passions. Yeah. You think, I want this, I need this. I... But then the Holy Spirit says, no, you don't need it. And you'll trust the Holy Spirit mm. to do it. Yeah. Okay, here's a few examples of how the gospel changes our approach. Yeah. It's not moralism, it's not relativism, it's something different. So if you guys have been helped by this... Um, yeah, just send us a message. Let us know. If you've got any questions, send us an email. We'd love to answer them the best of our ability. We love you guys. We will talk to you soon. <laughs>